1789, this young country was off to a fresh start. The Constitution drafted at convention two years earlier in Philadelphia had been ratified by 11 states. And the first Congress sat down to begin the business of legislating. Many of the states had, had ratified the Constitution and requested amendments guarantee the freedoms that they had and had fought for, for at the, uh, from a war from uh, independence from England and saw the new Congress work through the summer to create that document. By the end of September of that year, Congress finished a draft of 12 amendments, which were delivered to President George Washington with a request to, to submit them to the states for ratification. Congress also asked the president to do something else. A special committee formed from both the U.S. House and Senate asked President Washington to issue a proclamation declaring a national day of prayer and thanksgiving. Washington compiled this within a few days, and this is what he wrote. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts and many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peacefully to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November, next to be devoted by the people of the United States to the service of that great and glorious being who is the benefit beneficent author of all the good uh, all the good that was that is or will be that they may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous through their becoming a nation for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence which we experienced in the in the course in conclusion to this late war, that being the Revolutionary War, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberties which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which we have been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind 
such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows best. This given under my hand at the city of New York in the third day of October in the Lord in the year of our Lord, 1789, George Washington. I just thought it was very important for us to remember that uh, food, family, and football is great for Thanksgiving, but for us to remember what Thanksgiving is really about. What a blessed nation we are to have what we have and not to forget that. So uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, for this nation. We thank you for those years and years ago that saw fit to create a new nation and to establish it under your laws and, and uh, your provision and then to be thankful for the blessings that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for those that are serving our nation that will be away from family and friends uh, during this Thanksgiving and even Christmas season. And Lord, just protect them, watch over them. Lord, I just pray that we will return as a nation back to those values that so long ago that our founding fathers thought were important and believed to be important and to set aside a time uh, for a day of Thanksgiving. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And at this time, just ask that we all return to a heart and a mind to hear the message that Pastor Brian has today. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Kevin, for reading that this morning. They spoke a little different than we do now, and it's not always easy to read. But you did a great job, and I appreciate it. I spoke with Kevin Yesterday about today's service and he called with some questions and to give you some background this week as I was preparing for this morning's message I couldn't get an illustration that I was just totally satisfied with I always like to open with some form of illustration that's what they teach you at seminary and so that's what I faithfully do you've got to start with a a story that's not always true but I try to do that. But I couldn't get a story that just grabbed, that gripped me, that I liked, that I thought was a, a good fit, that the Lord was saying, yes, this is a good one to use. And I just wrestled with it all week. And as of yesterday, I still didn't know how my opening was going to go. And Kevin called yesterday. Well, let me, let me jump back for just a second. This proclamation by George Washington was one of the options For my opening, I was looking at several different stories, some personal stories, uh, some other illustrations, and I was also looking at this proclamation that George Washington made in 1789 as a possibility for opening today's message as we enter into this Thanksgiving season. So yesterday, Kevin and I are talking on the phone, and Kevin says, hey, I, I came across this proclamation that George Washington made this week, and I thought maybe we could use it tomorrow in the service somewhere. And I said, thank you, Lord. There's the answer to my prayer. And so I shared with Kevin, you know, I was looking at different illustrations, different ways to open the service this morning, different ways to open my sermon. And that was one of them. And I just didn't know which one to use. But God has used you today to uh, confirm how he wants to open up tomorrow's message. And so I asked Kevin to read that, and I appreciate him doing that. In 1789, upon the request of Congress, George Washington sat down and pinned out this proclamation, this call to all Americans to reserve this day, one day, 
for thanksgiving, for thanking our God, who is, as I think he said, the, the beneficent author of all the good that we have. And, and there's so many traditions, there's so many activities, there's so many practices that we utilize when it comes to this time of year to Thanksgiving this week. We look forward to the tremendous meals that most of us will eat, maybe turkey or ham, dressing, gobs of desserts, and it is very good. But... When we think about it, when we recollect, we realize that this day is for more than just, I think, football, food, and what was the other F, Kevin? Family. It's more than just that. Biblically, it's more than that. And historically, it is more than just that. And it is good for us to stop and remember what this week is really for. And not just this week, but it's a call To be grateful every week, every day, every moment. And so what I want to speak on today is that God's constant presence deserves our constant gratitude. When God is present, we are to be a grateful people. If you'll turn with me today to Psalm 100, I want us to read this text together, and then I want us to speak on gratitude, thanksgiving. Psalm 100, and we will read all five verses. You can turn to your Bible, to your phone, to your iPad, to whatever you use, or of course it will be up here as well. And since I am new here... I primarily use the English Standard Version when I read from the text. Now, I use multiple versions in my study, but this is what I will usually read out of, although sometimes another text may serve better um, the original text, and it may serve my sermon better, so I will use it. But, today, uh, but primarily, I will be using the English Standard Version, not that you need to go out and buy an ESV Bible. If you have King James, NIV, NASB, Uh, NLT, whatever you have, that's fine. But I just want you to know, so you're not going, what is he reading from, you know? All right, if you'll stand with me this morning, let us read God's word together. If, If you can stand. Psalm 100, a very familiar psalm. And the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures Forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Please be seated. Father, we do thank you this morning that your steadfast love endures forever. It is to all 
generations to all who would receive it in faith. And God, I just ask this morning that I, your servant, would get out of the way of the word, the message that you have for your people here this morning. And as I just, I love this morning, as Greg and Darren, uh, Jaron and I were praying together, Greg said, let use Brian, don't let him use you. And I just thought that was such a great prayer. So Father, this morning, use me. Don't let me use you. Let me be the tool instead of your word being my tool. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we have all sorts of traditions and practices when we come to Thanksgiving, whether it's eating the food, whether it's watching the game, whether it's singing Albuquerque Turkey, Patrick, whatever our tradition is, and they are good or can be, what it's all about is giving God the thanks and praise he deserves. The Albuquerque Turkey is an inside thing. Um, on Wednesday night, Patrick spoke and he had the youth sing that song, um, and, and there was a whole youth choir up here. It was pretty fantastic. If you go on to Bob Maddox's Facebook page, if he still has it up, there is a video of the youth. They're not singing Albuquerque Turkey, unfortunately, but they are singing Jesus Loves Me, and you can go on there and watch that. It's very impressive uh, and, and a bit entertaining, so check that out if you are able to. And then go up to our youth and embarrass them. Uh, please do that. I just want to see two things today. I want us to see two points today out of this psalm, out of this text about thanksgiving. The first point that we will look at this morning is that we are to serve the Lord with gladness. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. And then secondly, we are to always be thankful. So we must always serve him with gladness and we must always be Thankful. Did you know that gladness is a form of gratitude? If you are glad, you are grateful. And if you're grateful, then you're probably glad. Now, we need to talk about the different forms of glad. There's the giddy, emotional glad that's surface level, that's superficial. And and God is the God of emotions. God made us emotional beings. Emotions are not the enemy. Emotions are not bad. In fact, we're supposed to praise him with our emotions as well as with the rest of who we are. But when I talk about gladness, when the Bible talks about gladness, it's not just goosebumps. It's much deeper than that. It may include those, but it's not just that. So that whether... Life is, whether it's a giddy day where everything's going great and and we've got the goosebumps, although this morning you probably had them regardless of what your day has been like. Or if it's just one of those days where you're saying, God, what is going on? Where are you? We can be glad in both. Can we not? We sure can. Because God is God. Because he's on the throne. And because even... At the worst, even at the lowest, there is something to be thankful for. Namely, Jesus Christ 
and the offer of grace that he gives to us through his death and resurrection. But if you are glad, you are grateful. If you are grateful, you are glad. Gladness is a form of gratitude. So when I say serve the Lord with gladness, I could also say serve the Lord with gratefulness. Now, look at verse 1 here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. What are those? Are those suggestions? Are those requests? No, those are commands. The psalmist is writing, but we know that this is God's word. So God is saying to you, make a joyful noise to me. Serve me with gladness. That is a command. We are not to be subdued or reserved in our praise. Did you know that there's a difference between, between being reverent and being reserved? Did you know that? Yes, we are called to be reverent, but reverent does not mean reserved. Reserved is to hold back, to be nonchalant, to be stoic and stone-faced. That is not reverence. That is apathy. Reverence is a proper response to the present reality of God. I should have put that up there. Write that down if you can. Reverence is a proper response to the present reality of God. It is the proper response to God's holiness and to his activity in the moment. Sometimes it's quiet solemnity. Sometimes it looks like coming in and not saying a word, not jumping up and down, not shouting out loud. Sometimes it's broken repentance. Sometimes it's on our faces weeping. And sometimes it's boisterous celebration. And let me just give you some biblical examples here of the whole gamut. And we see it here. When Moses came down, or, or when Moses came to the burning bush, remember what happened? Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And so Moses took off his shoes and he knelt down before God. That was reverence at that moment. Because it was responding to God's presence and what he was up to at that moment. When Joshua saw the captain of the Lord's host, which most believe, as well as I, that this was the pre-incarnate Christ, that this was a, 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 a form of Christ before he would come to die, what did Joshua do? He became very afraid. He got scared, and rightfully so, and he fell on his face. That was reverence. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up in the temple, he pronounced judgment on himself because he saw his own sinfulness in stark contrast to God's holiness. And he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a, an unclean people. Basically, he was saying, God, I am unworthy to be alive. Kill me. That's the only proper thing to do at this moment. When John the Revelator stood before Jesus in his vision, it says he fell down as a dead man. Those were all moments of reverence. They were acting reverently before their God. But then we think about David. 
Do you remember David bringing the ark back into Jerusalem? The ark hadn't been there for, I think it was 17 years. And he's finally bringing the ark back to its proper place. And David is excited to say the least. Do you remember what David did? His wife was ticked off at him for this. Do you remember? The dude was dancing naked. He was dancing down the streets of Jerusalem, coming into town with nothing but hopefully a loincloth on. At least I think he had that on. But that was it. I mean, there was just such a joyous celebration that he ripped his clothes off and he was dancing like a madman. But it wasn't madness that compelled him to such extreme actions. It was the wonderful reality of God's goodness and grace. It was the proper response to an amazing reality. And it was reverent. I would request that all of you come with clothes on next Sunday. But in that case, it was reverent. The humble brokenness of Moses, Joshua, Isaiah, and John, and the extreme excitement of David were all equally reverent and honoring to God. So reverence doesn't necessarily equal reservation, being reserved. In fact, I don't think it ever equals that. And the question is this, does the level of our gladness reflect the level of God's goodness? Does the level of your gladness this morning, right now, in this place, reflect the level of God's goodness? Too often, our response to God is based on some formulated, man-made presupposition as to what worship has to look like. And don't get me wrong, God's word does give us some parameters for worship. That is exactly right. But too often we respond to our own definitions of worship rather than responding to the reality of who God is and what he has done and is doing. Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and this differs with different denominations. You, you've got your very liturgical denominations and you come in. You're quiet, you're solemn. And and that can be very reverent and good. Please don't hear me making fun of that. There's a time for that. You've got us Southern Baptists who, who are kind of down the middle of the road. We don't lean too liturgical, but we don't get too excited either. And, and, and that can be good. There's a time for that. And then you've got our brothers and sisters over here in the Pentecostal charismatic denominations. And they get a little more excited than we do. And that's not bad. There's a time for that. And, and all three can be very good and all three can be taken too far. But too often we come with our own definition based on our history, our background, our presuppositions, and we respond to how we think worship should look instead of how God has called for it to be, instead of the reality of His great goodness. There must be a freedom. I love, we, talk, we sang about that this morning, 
the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, we don't go beyond his word. But at the same time, we don't fall short. Do you worship as if the spectacular truths we claim are true? Do you worship as if what the Bible said is real? It's true. Because they are. They absolutely are. This is God's word. It is truth. And the wonderful, wonderful reality of those truths deserve a response 10,000 times more heartfelt than our response to anything else in this life. Our worship should be with unparalleled humility and brokenness and with unspeakable gladness and joy. Let me say that again. Our worship should be with unparalleled humility and brokenness and with unspeakable gladness and joy. It should be a worship full of passion and zeal. It should be a genuine, heartfelt worship. And it's not because we can't get excited. I've seen, just the little time I've been here, I've seen you all get excited. And we as people, we get excited pretty easily. We are naturally a celebratory people. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate holidays. We celebrate victories. We celebrate promotions. We celebrate the birth of children. We know how to celebrate. The question is, the all-important question is, are we celebrating Jesus more than we celebrate over anything or anyone else? I'll give you an example in my own life. Um, four years ago, and please don't, I'm glad the rocks are up here so you don't start throwing them. Four years ago, well, Lamar has won the state championship for the last three years ago. Four years ago they were in the running, but they lost in the game before the state championship game. But in the quarterfinal game, they were playing Liberty Mountain View to move on to the semifinal game. And they had, they had trailed the whole entire game. In the fourth quarter, they were down by six points. And with just a couple minutes to go, they got the ball in their own territory. They marched down. I thought, oh, there's hope. Maybe they can pull this off. And I don't remember. It was, it was in the red zone. They lost the ball. I thought, it's over. It's done. Well, our defense came in, and they held Liberty to a three-and-out situation. Liberty punted the ball. And with 40 seconds to go, we were in our own territory. And, and there was a chance, but it was a fool's chance. And by some wonder, they marched the ball down. And with 15 seconds to go, was that, let me, let me check, because I may have got that wrong. No, I'm sorry. With five seconds to go on the 15-yard line, they had one play left to score a touchdown. So the, the quarterback took the snap. The receivers ran into the end zone and the quarterback let the ball fly. And of course, all the Lamar fans are just holding their breath going, catch it, catch it, catch it. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm in Tennessee in my office, don't tell my church, listening to the game on the internet. I guess they're not, it's my old church, my other church. I, well, I mean, what are they going to do, fire me now, right? But I'm listening intently to this, and the announcer saying the quarterback threw the ball. And as the ball floated into the end zone, one of the defensive backs jumped up and tipped the ball. And he goes, oh, no, the defense tipped the ball. I thought the game was over. 
But then one of the Lamar receivers dove and Milliseconds before it hit the ground, he caught the ball in the end zone. Touchdown! Six points, game tied, and we can win it with the extra point. The extra point team came in, they kicked it, was good, we won the game. And as I was listening, just so excited, the, the crowd in the background as the announcers were talking about it, they just erupted. I mean, it got crazy. And I know my wife thought something was wrong with me. Because I was running around my office screaming, we won, we won, we won. I was excited. And I think it was good and okay for me to be excited about that. But am I more excited about the Lord? We watch our favorite sports team and we jump, applaud, yell at the TV as if it will somehow change the referee's decision. We get excited when our team wins games, and especially when they win championships. But how do we respond to a God who has offered us things 10 million times more wonderful than our favorite team winning a game or even a championship? When, when we go to eat this Thanksgiving meal, we should be grateful for it. We should celebrate in it. We should tell whoever cooked it, great job. Thank you. We should get excited about food. There are people around the world who don't have food like we have. We should be excited about that. But one of my favorite preachers once said that if we don't rejoice more in what God is doing than in the meals we eat, then we commit blasphemy against him when we eat. Because we're more excited about the food than we are about the God who gave us that food. Let me give you another illustration uh, to show us how this applies in our lives. George Whitfield was an 18th century itinerant evangelist. He preached with much enthusiasm and a dramatic flair that was very rare for that time period there in the 1700s. In fact, the pulpit that he traveled with was not a normal pulpit like you would think. It was a stage because he would, he would move all around that thing. And God used George Whitfield to bring many to salvation, but not everyone liked Whitfield or thought he was godly. One of the main accusations against Whitfield by his critics was that he was merely acting when he preached, always looking for an audience to respond to his drama. It was all fake. It was all a show. I want you to hear something that Whitfield himself said in, in response to these accusations. He said, I'll tell you a story. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1675 was acquainted with Mr. Butterden, the actor. Mr. Butterden was apparently a famous actor at that time. One day, the archbishop said to Mr. Butterden, Pray, inform me, Mr. Butterden, what is the reason you actors on stage can affect your congregations with speaking of things imaginary as if they were, re as if they were real, while we in the church speak of things real, which our congregations only receive as if they were imaginary? And this was Mr. Butterton's response. Why, my Lord, the reason is very plain. We actors on stage speak of things imaginary as if they were real. And you in the pulpit speak of things real as if they were imaginary. Therefore, added Whitfield, 
I will shout loudly. I will not be a velvet-mouthed preacher. Now, let me give you some commentary by John Piper on his, in his biographical overview of George Whitfield in response to this story. This is what he said. He says, this means that there are three ways to speak. First, you can speak of an unreal, imaginary world as if it were real. That is what actors in a play do. Second, you can speak about a real world as if it were unreal. That is what half-hearted pastors do when they preach about glorious things in a way that says they are not as terrifying and wonderful as they are. And third is, you can speak about a real spiritual world as if it were wonderfully, terrifyingly, magnificently real. Because it is. Whitfield was acting with all his might, not because it takes greater gimmicks and charades to convince people of the unreal, but because he had seen something more real than actors on the London stage had ever known. For him, the truths of the gospel were so real, so wonderfully, terrifyingly, magnificently real, that he could not and would not preach them as though they were unreal or merely interesting. Now, as believers, we go into the world and we say we know something. We know a truth that can save you, that can change your life. We have a Savior, God himself, who took on flesh. He came to earth and he died on a cross for you and for me. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message we take to the world, or we should. And yet, do we speak of that wonderful, magnificent message as if it's just another story. As if it's just another truth among many others. When we teach our kids, do we teach them in such a way that it looks just like and sounds just like all the other fairy tales that we teach them and they cannot discern between the two, which is real and which is fake? How do we talk about this Jesus, our Jesus, our Savior and Lord? who was bruised and crushed for us? Do we speak with such compassion that it's different than everything else we talk about? Do we believe this to the point that it excites us more than anything else in our life? When we talk about it, is it just us putting on a show or people saying, well, I don't think that's real or I don't even know if you believe it because, yeah, you say it, but your life looks so different. Or do we live in such a way and talk about it in such a way and desire Christ in our life in such a way that people say, I don't know if I believe it, but man, they do. How do you communicate Christ in your life? Does the level of your gladness reflect the level of God's goodness? I want you to notice what the psalmist says in verse 3. If you look at your text there. Know that the Lord, He is God. God is God. I, I know it sounds so obvious, but this understanding is so foundational in our ability to be truly grateful. I know it's true because God himself identified himself to Moses. Remember Moses the bush, who are you? Who should I say sent me? And what did God say? I am. That's right. I am. Now if you came to me and said, Brian, 
who are you? I said, I'm Brian. Well, I know you're Brian, but who you are? That's, that's who I am. I am. I am he. You, you would get a little frustrated. But that's who God is. God is God. That's the only way we can truly describe him. He is capital G, God. Do you know that God is not only someone to be respected as if tipping your hat to him or giving him a cursory bow is what it means to serve the Lord with gladness? A lot of times we think if we just do our little quiet time in the morning or say our little prayer or say God bless at our meals, that's it. That, that's good. We've covered our Christian duty for the day. He's not just that. He's not just a father. He is our heavenly father, but he's not just a father. He's not only some affectionate, benevolent being up in the air who cuddles up with us when we're sad and hears us when we need something. He is those things, but he is much more than that. He is God. He is the infinite, holy, unchanging, eternal God of the universe. He is unmatched and unparalleled. He takes counsel from no one and needs nothing outside of himself. At his voice, the mountains tremble and the earth shakes. All of creation quakes in his midst, all faint before him. No one can look at the fullness of his glory and live to tell about it. He is God. And we have to come to grips with that all-inclusive truth. We cannot begin to worship Him in a way that is worthy of Him until we truly believe that He is God alone. Is He your God this morning? He becomes your God through faith in His Son, Jesus. That is the true act of worship. Not on a mountain, not in a valley... Not in some temple built with human hands. It's coming to his son and saying, I'm desperate and I need you. The cool thing about this, though, we are commanded to be glad and to give thanks. But God provides the necessary atmosphere for true worship, for true gratitude. God does it all. His goodness ensures our ability for gratitude. His goodness ensures, it guarantees our ability for gratitude. How can God command gladness and gratitude? Those are both emotions, and you know as well as I do, that we don't control our emotions. We can control how we respond to how we feel, but you either feel it or you don't. And you can't make yourself feel something, not normally. And so it would seem very unfair that God would command gladness and gratitude. But here's the explanation. God provides, sustains, cares for, and upholds us at every second. We have life and breath and everything good that we have because of Him. He is God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient, and He has created us. He made us. We didn't make ourselves We didn't, in some primordial consciousness, decide to be. If we exist, then we exist because God created us. And He not only created us, but He provides for us. What does it say in verse 3? We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. He cares for us, provides for us, and protects us. 
And if you look at your text again, the connection between verses 1 and 2, the command to be glad, the command to praise him, the command to be grateful, the, the connection with that and the connection with verse 3 is seen. God can confidently and unapologetically command the action of heartfelt praise and the emotion of gladness and gratitude because he knows that his goodness in our life is great enough to bring about those emotions. God can command those things because he knows that his, good and his goodness is great enough to bring about those emotions. His goodness ensures our ability for gratitude. He will go, and this is why God is so awesome. This is, this is why I love him so much. In fact, John says that we love him because what? He first loved us. He will go to great lengths to be so good to you as to ensure your gratitude for him. He's like a father who tells his child to love him and to be grateful to him and to be glad. And the child says, why should I do that? And then the child takes him to the toy store. He opens the door and he says, whatever you want, it's yours. Is it hard for the child to say thank you, to be glad, to love the father at that moment? No, it's not. And that's what God does for us. The question is, are you walking with God through Jesus so that you are daily experiencing his goodness? Are you walking with God through Jesus Christ, his son, so that you are daily experiencing his goodness? We are commanded to be grateful and glad. And when we are experiencing his infinite goodness on a daily basis, it will not be difficult to be thankful. In fact, it will come quite naturally to all of us. We will be a glad and grateful people when we walk in God's goodness well, that's the first point. The second point is much shorter, I promise. And it's this. Be thankful always. Be thankful always. Why? Why must we be thankful? Well, look at verse 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. What does that mean? Well, both of those things are a sign of his presence. Enter into God's presence with Gratitude. That's what it's saying. And so I can say to you, God's word can say to you, always be thankful because we are always in God's presence. He is an all present God. If we are to be grateful when his presence is near, if his presence is always near, then we are to always be grateful. Would you agree with that? And I know this to be true because Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8 says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. He is an omnipresent and all the time present God. You cannot go anywhere where he is not. And if his presence determines or, or dictates for you, or as a prerequisite for your gratitude, then we must always be grateful because He is always present. Also, we must always be thankful because thankfulness is commanded throughout the entire Bible. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will for you to always be thankful. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or Psalm 95, 1 and 2. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. The Bible commands it all over the place. And once again, thankfulness to God is a duty born of delight in God. Thankfulness to God is a duty. It's commanded. We have to do it. We're supposed to do it. We must do it. But it's not just a duty. Because it's born of delight in God. In fact, thankfulness cannot be mustered up or created. We're either grateful or we're not. We can say thank you, but it doesn't mean we are grateful. But it is possible for us as believers to come to a point where we not only say thank you with our lips, but we feel thankful with our hearts. And God's goodness, as I said above, ensures our ability to be grateful. So yes, it is a duty, but it is a duty which can only be born from delight in God. And because God is always good. In fact, you've heard the chant, God is good, and the other side says all the time, and the other side says all the time, and this side says God is good. Because he's good all the time, there is no excuse for ingratitude. And my last thing, this is it, the last point, and look at verse 5. For the Lord is, what is it? Good. I wish they would have put that word in all caps. The Lord is good with like 10,000 exclamation marks. The Lord is good. And what an understatement that is if there ever was one. The Lord is good. Yeah, he's good. He's great. He's wonderful. He's stupendous. He's amazing and kind and loving. And he died for us. His goodness, His love is seen through the cross, through the death and resurrection of His Son. He has extended His everlasting mercy and goodness to us as undeserving, rebellious people. So that if we trust Him as our Lord and Savior, He will forgive us of all our sins and redeem us to Himself. That is a wonderful truth this morning. And it gives us every reason to be thankful. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness is to all generations. Northwestern University at Evanston, Illinois, for many years back in the 1800s, had a volunteer life-saving crew among its students all the time. On September 8, 1860, the Lady Elgin, a crowded passenger steamer, foundered off the shore of Lake Michigan just above Evanston. And so this life-saving crew went into action. One of the students gathered on the shore. Edward Spencer was his name. He was a student at Garrett Biblical Institute. He wasn't a student at Northwestern, but he was on their life-saving crew. He saw a woman clinging to some wreckage far out on the breakers. And knowing with the storm going, with the waters raging, that her life was at stake, without question, he jumped in the water and he swam out to her. 
and brought her back to land to safety. But then he began to see others waiting to be rescued. And so 16 more times he went out that day fighting off the waves the, and the beating water to bring these people to safety. 17 lives were saved that day because of Edward Spencer. The sad thing is, is because of the great toll it took on his body, Edward Spencer was sick the rest of his life. He was pursuing ministry. He was not able to do that because of the health issues that he had as a result of this situation. And so he pretty much lived as a recluse. He did have some ministry to people to the point that he could, but not what he had planned. At age 81, Edward Spencer died alone in California. And in a notice of his death, one paper said, in telling of his account and what he had done, that not a single one of the 17 people had ever come to thank him. Do you feel that this morning? The ingratitude of, I saved your life, and I get no thanks. I wonder how often God says, I saved your life. I saved your soul. And you can't be grateful. You can't muster up any gratitude today. How dishonoring that is to our Savior, who saved us from so much and has loved us so greatly. My friends, today you are called to gratitude. This week we remember our God. And we not only remember to say thank you, we remember that we must say thank you every single day of the week. Because we as believers, more than anyone else, have a reason to be thankful Be thankful, be cheerful, be glad. Our God is great.